Hey, everybody. Welcome to Cigars and Syndication, where we're passionate about real estate and passionate about cigars. Uh, today, uh, we're smoking a La Flor Dominica 25th anniversary, and uh, we just lit these up and uh, really, uh, really enjoying it so far. Yeah. Hi, everybody. I'm Junaid Noor. Um, we are, uh, this is a Churchill size 7x52, is it? 7x52. It's a very good on the start. Uh, peppery. Get some cocoa, a little bit of leather, but more pepper and cocoa. And uh, I know that this is a very complex smoke. Uh, I've had this before. Uh, by the middle of it, it's gonna it's gonna start mellowing out. Uh, but uh, I think this is a this is a two episode uh, smoke, isn't it? I think you're right. I think this is going to be a two episode smoke. Um, you know, our our topic today is going to be a, a hot topic. Um, it's going to be about the silicon the Silicon Valley bank and some of the things and circumstances that uh, led up to where we are today. Yeah. It's uh, everybody's talking about Silicon Valley bank right now or SVB. Um, you know, they're, you know, they were founded in uh, 1983. Um, and, you know, I may be dating myself, but to me, 1983 doesn't seem that far that long ago, but they're still, you know, they've been around for 40 years. So, it's not like they were founded yesterday. Yeah, no, they've been around since 1983, and I think they they originally started off as the Santa Clara Valley Bank, and uh, initially, and then and then changed their name to the Silicon Valley Bank to kind of kind of suit their uh, their customer base a little bit more, and um, and try to uh, to cater just to the the tech industry. Yeah, and uh, they basically became bankers to the uh, to the the tech industry. When uh, other banks didn't want to deal with the tech industry, uh, they didn't want to be able to provide any kinds of lines of credit. Uh, and, and conversely, when tech startups started uh, coming into fruition, they didn't actually know who Silicon Valley Bank was. Uh, and uh, it took a lot of convincing on, on the part of the, the three founders of Silicon Valley Bank to to get tech startups to come in and start banking with them. Yeah, it seems like, um, you know, they had a, a really impressive list of customers from Google to Apple, uh, and, and it really seemed like um, they hit uh, they hit the mark when, uh, when they put their business plan together, and it seems like they, uh, you know, at least uh, for a good run, had a, had a good strategy. Yeah, Cisco and Netflix were also uh, some, of their, some of their customers. Um, and you know they went they went public in the '90s, uh, and they were doing pretty well. Uh, you know it was a hot decade. The '90s was a great decade for startups, and uh, even after the 2000 tech bubble burst, um, you know other tech startups came into fruition, and VCs were still you know VCs had a lot of money, and VCs were still uh, putting money in uh, to startups. Um, the interesting thing is that uh, startups don't usually need a lot of debt they don't need they don't usually have a lot of uh loans most all their money comes from uh, venture capital and you know the vcs fund those deals so they're all equity-based deals and then that those funds are deposited into a bank and and silicon valley bank was the premier bank for vcs in in silicon valley to to deposit their money in right and and when we were talking earlier you were talking about uh, that they did a lot of investing in long-term bonds. And and this was to kind of balance out their portfolio a little bit. 
Yeah, so they wanted to stay with uh, investing in startups, but when you get deposits from startups, you still have to, to, to be able to pay your shareholders out. So what they decided to do was they, they put a lot of money into, uh, into treasuries, U.S. treasuries, and because treasuries were giving a consistent rate of return, they were giving interest, and, you know, it would smoothen out their, their returns. And I think they were getting like 1.83% uh, on the treasuries. And the money is just sitting there, right? So uh, startups, as they raise capital, as they need capital, they will uh, deposit funds that they raise in. And then as they need to pay, make their payroll, their research and development, they withdraw funds. So for their shareholders, it was, you know, wow, we've got all these great customers, Google and Netflix and uh, their their newest customers were Roku um, and uh, Etsy. Those are some of the the current customers that uh, kind of got caught in this pickle when uh, the the bank failed. Yeah, no, you've seen that, and you've heard from a lot of them, and and you know their inability to take care of uh, their vendors and customers, and it, it's pretty scary. I could see where uh, you know they did have a run on on withdrawals that that really kind of really put this thing in motion. Yeah, so, you know, we, we do another episode uh, here on Cigars and Syndication uh, where we explain bond yields. And one of the problems, uh, and you can look up that episode, we're going to link to it uh, at the bottom of the page, uh, along with an article uh, talking about uh, what we're talking about here in the podcast. Uh, we'll link to that, too, on our website uh, at www.albanyparkcapital.com. Uh, so going back to yields, when what happens is that when you are invested in a, a bond, a treasury bond, now treasury bond, again, you know, is, is guaranteed, right? The U.S. government can print money backed by the full faith and credit of the United States government. So the, the, the coupon, which is the face value of the bond, and let's say it's a 2% bond, and you, you know, you put $100,000 in, you're going to get that 2% interest every year. And if it's a five-year bond, if it's a 10-year bond, if it's a one-year, whatever it is, you're going to get that money back plus, uh, you're going to get that interest plus the principal, and that's pretty much guaranteed. Um, but what happens is when you need that money before the maturity of the bond, you need to go sell it in the open market. In order to be able to sell it in the open market, if your bond is only paying 2% interest and the government is issuing new bonds, which are paying 5% interest, well, no one's going to buy your bonds. So when that happens, you have to discount your initial payment on the bond. Correct. So what will happen is that if you have a $1,000 bond, you're going to have to discount it by 3%. You know, So you're going to sell that bond for $97, uh, $970. Um, if you're gonna, if you're going to to discount it and um, uh, be able to uh, balance out the interest rate that the buyer will receive from the bond that they would normally receive if they would have bought a five percent bond, so so basically they're they're borrowing short term but investing long term, and and then as this as we talk about in, in an upcoming uh, podcast, uh, the inv the inverted uh, yield curve caught them. So the inverted yield curve is one of the issues, right? The market being what it is that nobody wants their bonds when when they can go out and buy uh, better paying bonds uh, 
better yield bonds in the market. But there are two other problems. Uh, one is the accounting problem, and the second is the regulatory problem. Um, and I think what we'll do is we'll we'll try to dive into each of these in detail as we as we go along in the podcast. Well, as, before we get into those, um, I think we should talk about this this LFD twenty uh, fifth anniversary smoke. Um, it is really complex, and I'm getting a lot of a lot of different flavors. And and you know, you still you get the peppery, and it is definitely hitting the the, the roof of my mouth. And but I'm getting some sweetness, and it's kind of maybe uh, maybe a little coffee, maybe almost like a little marshmallowy or something. It's a really it's a really interesting complex smoke. Yeah, it is very interesting. It's very complex. It's mellowing out for me, um, which which I kind of uh, figured it would. Uh, but yeah, it's a very complex smoke. It's a very good smoke. Uh, I'm I'm really enjoying this. Yeah, myself. It's a um, it's what is it? Would uh, would we say it was a uh, an Ecuadorian wrapper with Dominican binder and filler? Uh, and this is the uh, the Churchill size. It was a fifty two by seven by seven. Yep. Yeah. Well, I think what really kind of put this thing in motion was at the, the end of uh, 2022, uh, they had to report um, $1.8 billion in unrealized losses on their uh, bonds. Yeah. So, well, there's, there's a couple of things that, you know, just kind of went into this perfect storm. Uh, one is that they had a lot of uninsured depositors, right? So these tech companies come in and they put in, you know, millions and millions of dollars in their accounts. Uh, and the FDIC only guarantees $250,000 per account type, per depositor. So if you have a, a, a checking account and a savings account, then you're $500,000 insured. And then if you have a money market account, then you're $750,000 insured. So, you know, with some of these VCs that have, you know, 10 and 20 and 30 and $50 million sitting in the account, in one account, well, if that first $250,000 is insured, the rest of it is not. So when you have a lot of uninsured deposits uh, and a fear comes out in the market that your bank may not be able to cover, doesn't have enough money to, to pay you back, and the FDIC won't insure that, what do you do? Yeah, everybody rushed to withdraw their, their funds. Everybody rushed to withdraw their funds. Created a, a shortage at the, at the bank. So, so then that's when they tried to liquidate their long-term bonds at a loss. Right. So the other issue that I wanted to talk about is the accounting, right? The accounting rub. And the accounting rub is that during 2007, 2008, right around that time, uh, there's a body, governing body, called the FASB, the Financial Accounting Standards Board. Uh, they are in charge of making the rules for generally accepted accounting principles. Those are the rules that uh, all public corporations have to abide by in order for they in order for their financial statements to be audited and approved uh, for use. Okay, so it's it's a it's a set of rules that everybody shows consistent reporting. So anyway, the FASB. Uh, pushed through, they fast-tracked this rule, which has been around since, you know, the 30s, but was never really used properly. It's called mark-to-market. And mark-to-market basically means that if you have securities on your balance sheet that you purchased, um, 
let's say, you know, uh, a year ago, almost uh, Tesla purchased a lot of cryptocurrency. Okay. And then they made an announcement. Elon Musk tweeted, Tesla is buying crypto. Oh, and by the way, we may even accept Bitcoin for Tesla purchases. So Bitcoin's price went up because there was a, now there's a demand for Bitcoin. Well, when Bitcoin fell and it went to $30,000 and then went back down to $10,000, mark-to-market accounting basically says that if it went down to $10,000, you need, and you purchased it for $20,000, you need to show that $10,000 loss as an unrealized loss on your balance sheet. Um, so, um, in, in December 31st, 2022, uh, the balance sheet for Silicon Valley bank, they had to show unrealized losses for all those bonds that they purchased, which were paying 1.8% interest. But now the yields are much, much lower because, uh, actual bonds, are producing are are paying five percent interest. So there wasn't a real loss, uh, but from an accounting standpoint, for gap accounting principles, they had to report that as a loss on the balance sheets. But it doesn't really happen until the bond is sold. So if they kept those to maturity, the losses may have been a little less. Right, and so uh, and so what FASB. Uh, rules for mark-to-market accounting does is that it breaks up your securities into two buckets, ones that are held till maturity and ones that are for sale, right? So anything basically that you're going to sell within the year has to be marked down to its current market value, but not marked up. So you can't mark it up. You have to be able to mark it down though, because one of the rules that accounting follows is the rules of conservative uh, conservative, uh, conservatism. So we, we are conservative about, uh, making, not making the balance sheet, balance sheet look too good. So no forecasting or anything like that can come into play, but in the fact that there is market loss, you have to, you have to show that on the book. Right. Even though there is not an actual loss, but because there's a market loss, we have to show that on the books as an unrealized loss. So, um, and, and, you know, again, the intent was very good. You know, during uh, Dodd-Frank, when Dodd-Frank was passed in 2008, um, th- one of the reasons it was passed is because the predecessors, uh, like Enron, right? Enron used crazy accounting. They called it uh, mark-to-forecast, you know, uh, where they would put securities on their balance sheet, which the value of it was based on forecasts, not even market. And they would just keep increasing those values and keep getting more money off of those, you know, issuing more bonds and issuing more securities off of that because they would overinflate their balance sheets. So the intent was that, well, you know, we want to prevent that. So we're going to require everybody to do mark-to-market accounting. Well, I think that pretty much sums up the the accounting for the the Silicon Valley Bank fiasco that's that's happening before us today. And, um, you know, we're going to, we're going to, Follow this up with a part two to this and dig into the regulations and the regulatory part of this whole uh, episode. Yep. Uh, and uh, we'll get we'll get in a little bit more deeper into uh, the events that were unfolding and maybe, you know, what what may have been able 
to be done to 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 prevent this. But uh, yeah, we'll we'll catch you we'll catch you on the next episode.